Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. <laughs> hey, Gabby, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good. I'm not sure all about the uh, the refrain there, but that was <laughs> yeah, that's that's, it didn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's all good. What are we talking about today, Gabby? What are we tackling today's episode? We got into something pretty topical at the moment, which is a little bit unusual for us, but it's an interesting topic to bring to the table. It's um, debt-to-income ratios and basically how the the government and treasurer are looking to bring in um, tighter regulations on these, um, largely to like put a cap on the crazy price growth that's been happening recently. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, totally. So, we dig into... What is actually happening with the debt-to-income ratio, um, proposed changes to the debt-to-income ratio um, uh, policies, what that means for investors, who's going to be most affected and why, how you as an investor can you know, continue to succeed in this kind of environment and how to navigate this. And in fact, the totally contrarian views as to why I personally think that this is a great thing. So if you want to dig into all of that kind of stuff, make sure you listen to the whole episode. Um, it, we get into a lot of really meaty stuff here. It's really good. And as Gabby said, this is quite topical. Um, we get quite granular. As some of the stuff we do is often like quite principles focused and like, you know, 10,000 foot view. This one's right down there in the weeds. Um, so let us know what you think. Make sure you like, rate, review, share, give this to a friend, family member or loved one. Let us know what you think. And as ever, we'll see you on the inside. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. You're with your pals, Goof and Gabby. Gabby, how are you? I love when you say your pals. <laughs> Where are your pals? You're my I'm... pal. <laughs> yes, your pal, mate. I'm your pal. Yeah. I'm wonderful as always. Um, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's been a busy week. It's been a busy week. Lots happening. Indeed. And also pretty over lockdown now. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? that tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if psychologically humans have got like a like a three month uh, threshold to things because it sort of yeah. feels as sort of feels as though um, once people get past, it's like it's like the initial shock of going into lockdown. It's like ah, oh, okay, 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 all right, let's adjust, and then everyone's cool with it. And then when you pass ninety days of lockdown, it's like righto, this is this is getting a bit old now. What are we What are we doing here? So yeah, for sure. But no, look, exciting times, exciting times nonetheless. There's a lot going on, which is very good. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about um, potential new policy regulation changes coming in uh, regarding debt-to-income ratios. Mm, interesting. Mm. Very interesting. I'm sure a lot of investors are uh, going to be pretty interested in this topic because uh, obviously... Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably realise that um, the property market in Australia is experiencing a, you know, a golden age in terms of growth and activity and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, obviously one of the big bells that we need to look for in the distance to, to know, okay, the thing's going to change is what happens to lending policy. So, um, yeah, I think this is a really interesting, it's a really interesting topic and uh, probably maybe a little unsurprisingly, I might have a few contrarian views on it as well, actually. So, yeah, I'm, ke- I'm keen to dig in. Where do you want to start? Sweet. Um, well, I guess, like, you 
you and I, we pay attention to this kind of stuff. So yeah. how, do you want to just give a high-level explanation of like what is actually going on for people who may not be you know, attached to AFR as much as you are? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, for sure. So I mean, it's obviously not just in AFR, right? So property prices are increasing pretty, pretty quickly. It is not the job of the RBA, so the Reserve Bank of Australia, to control property prices. And as discussed on previous episodes, interest rates do not control property prices. That is not where the handbrake lies. It is not interest rates. It's access to credit, right? Access to credit is the handbrake that, um, is the, that can be applied or loosened on, on property price growth. Now, um, property price growth is a good thing. Uh, in Australia, that's where a lot of Australians' wealth is stored. But there's also um, a risk if it, if it accelerates too quickly. And if it accelerates too quickly, the, the speed of growth, it can get out of control. And if it gets out of control, it can become really unstable. And if it becomes really unstable, particularly in Australia, because it makes up such a huge proportion of our nation's wealth, the real estate industry alone is worth like $8.5, nearly $9 trillion. It's, it's the biggest industry in Australia um, connected with construction and all the other stuff, right? So... The real estate sector is something that requires a, a lot of care to make sure that it doesn't overcook. Now, if you want to see an overcooked market, um, just go to New Zealand. And they've really struggled to keep a lid on the growth there. And it's actually caused a lot of problems, right? Um, it's caused a lot of problems for affordability. It's, it's meant that they've had to completely overhaul a lot of their financial structures and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's a bit of a mad, madhouse over there. So what the... What the um, what APRA, so there's two kind of governing bodies. There's the RBA, they set interest rates, and then APRA, which is the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, uh, they are the ones that control things like lending policy. So APRA, in conjunction with Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, have decided, hey, look, there's the potential that in the future, left unchecked, the housing market could get itself into a situation where we're in a bubble. Very clearly, they have said, we're not in a bubble. There's no problem right now. What we're trying to do is to prevent potential future problems. And this is an important thing to understand because a lot of people can get caught up in it and go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it looks like we must be in a bubble. Ah, we must be in a bubble. And that's absolutely not the case. It's been explicitly stated from both APRA and Josh Frydenberg that they're not, there's not a problem right now. They're just identifying early signs of potential future problems and deciding to put some measures in place to, to, to prevent us having a problem down the line, which I personally think is a really, really good thing, right? Now, the way that they are doing that uh, is in, certainly in the first instance is they're talking about um, clamping down on higher leveraged people. So what that means in real terms is people that are borrowing over six times their income. So that's what we call the debt to income ratio. So if you earn $100,000, right? If you earn $100,000 salary, uh, then on a six times debt to income ratio, you would be able to get six times the amount of debt compared to your income. So that would mean you'd be able to get $600,000 worth of debt. Now, some people, so some lenders will lend more than six times debt to income ratio. So they might lend seven or even eight times debt to income ratio, um, which, you know, is fine, is totally fine. And it's not like that's necessarily a bad thing. But where the flag has come up is that over the last 12 months, the number of, um, or sorry, the percentage of borrowers which are borrowing more than six times debt to income ratio has increased from 16% to 22%, which is not an insignificant jump in the total percentage of lenders. And so in order to try and stop, you know, stop that continuing to grow and to just sort of slow that down and make sure that we're not becoming over leveraged or uh, anything like that, they're, they're going to start putting policies in place to limit the amount 
uh, of leveraging people can get to like six to six, six times debt to income ratio. Does that kind of give a good synopsis of the situation? Great synopsis, yeah. I'm just thinking about like, like obviously we, our kind of niche and focus is on investors, right? Yeah. But I'm also thinking about like first home buyers or home buyers in general, yeah. particularly with prices generally speaking rising quite quickly around the country that six to one ratio of if you earn 100 grand you can only borrow up to 600 grand for a lot of people might actually start becoming out of reach yeah well this is is, that in place yeah this is this is actually the point right this is actually entirely the point so by restricting what people can get access to from in terms of credit it will naturally restrict what people can sell the property for right because because mm. it may, it means that less people are going to be able to afford to spend more money on properties which is which is how they are, they can't set prices for properties right they do in china but you can't do that here right so they can't tell tell homeowners what to sell their properties for but what they can do is they can control how much buyers are able to spend right mm. so and that is that is the way that they can kind of put some hooks on on the growth and slow it down a little bit so you know we're looking yeah. broadly sorry go on because you think about the supply and demand scale, yeah. right? So it's like if you put a cap on the amount of people that can purchase the property, is it pulls down the demand that then balances out the prices? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's not. Um, this is not some. It's not like a guillotine method where they're trying to chop something off. They're actually just trying to chuck some hooks in and slow it down a little bit. Just ease on the brakes. Just slow it down just a touch. Because, you know, generally speaking, it's, you know, it's expected that, you know, across Australia, it's going to be about 20% capital growth this year, which is awesome, right? Um, and what they really want to do is they want to slow that back down to maybe 7% or something like that, which I think is awesome. You know, it's great. I actually think it's a really good thing. And I'll come back to why I think it's a really, really good thing to do. Um, but just back to you, back to your point about uh, affordability. So, when you talk about debt to income ratios, it really pays. It really pays to try and think about what that actually means, because a lot of people can go, "Oh my God, they're going to stop me getting access to debt," which is just not absolutely not true, right? So most people aren't. Like statistically speaking, most people are not leveraged more than six times debt to income ratio. Uh, most investors I know are not leveraged more than six times debt to income ratio. Um, and I want to talk about as well in this the impact that yields have on DTIs as well. So DTI is the acronym for debt to income. Now, what you said though is absolutely true because what's happening in 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 capital cities, well, so like let's take Sydney for example, right? Property prices are basically it's the, the the growth chart's basically vertical, right? It's pretty much they've just gone straight up, and it's ridiculous. Property prices have become overinflated and, and unsustainably so, in my opinion. And this is this is exactly the concern that APRA and the treasurer have, and what they're trying to slow down. They they're not saying let's stop growth; they're just saying let's stop this going out of control. Now, if the average income is about eighty three. For eighty-four thousand dollars, that means the average, the average person can only borrow about you know five hundred thousand dollars worth worth of debt on six six times debt to income. So if property prices in capital cities or in many places start to accelerate too far, for, too too much further, it's going to mean that people can't buy buy homes, right? And so this is going to put so the areas that are going to be most affected by this is where property prices are already over. You know that where the median house price is already over five hundred thousand dollars, right? So if you say the median, the national average weighs about eighty-five thousand dollars. So areas where the median house price is above five hundred thousand dollars, which is six times debt to income ratio on eighty-five grand, I think. You might want to double-check that math, but it's around about that. 
Uh, they're the areas that are going to get be be most throttled, right? They're the ones that they're going to that are going to pull back or slow down, in fact, right? And there's a big, there's a massive difference between a slowdown and a go down, right? So this does this does not mean that property prices are going to collapse or anything like that. It just means they're going to slow down. So there's a big. I'll say it again. There's a massive difference between a slowdown and a go down. And just because there's a slowdown doesn't mean it's not going to go up. It's just not going to go up as quickly, which Again, it's a really good thing. It's actually a good thing. So just looking at this pragmatically, you know, you can clearly start to identify the markets that are going to struggle the most. And they're, and they're the ones that, where the median house price is over $500,000 because that's over six times the median wage, right? So you can get a little bit more granular than that. You can look at like what the median wages are in specific towns and you could probably find that some areas will be able to support, you know, $600,000, et cetera. But the whole idea is to maintain affordability. And I think that works out. That's a really good thing for, um, for uh, first home buyers, but it's also totally fine for investors too. So. Awesome. Yeah. So did you, did that kind of, did you have any thoughts on that? I, I was thinking actually about, I was thinking about um, Philip Lowe, so the governor of RBA, mm. and he was saying that from their angle, obviously it's not their their job to enforce these kind of policies. Yeah. Um, but if, rather than having these kind of lending caps or these speed bumps in place, mm. that the strategy is more about building out, changing the value of the land um, on which these properties are, and that's actually going to reduce the fundamental kind of pricing of the market rather than <laughs> no, no, I know. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. What, what do you? What do you? Can you? Can you dig into that? Because I don't. Not sure if I understand what you mean. Um. So I think because people, people are thinking either put in some kind of debt to income ratio cap, or put in an LVR cap, or put yep. in some kind of interest rate buffer, make the buffer bigger. So I think like CBA have done that recently, where they've actually increased the buffer on the interest rates. Yeah. Um, just to test out serviceability because obviously people are getting more and more debt um, either for homes or investments. And so they're actually yeah. putting, increasing the buffer on the interest rate to just see like, how does yeah. that affect serviceability? Um, but Philip Lowe has said like, he's, he actually thinks that those strategies are not the best way to control this. And the best way, like a longer term view is actually to change more of like the taxation system and about like, rates and through councils and like the value of the land to control yeah. the pricing rather than just the access to it on the top level. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, yeah, I don't know. That's really fascinating because that's the first time I've heard that. And I, I, uh, I'd i love to dig into that a little bit more because on the surface, I'm like, how, how the hell you can't control the price of the dirt, right? Because it's a constrained supply. But certainly, you could you could control the taxation on that, right? And so, therefore, you could you know you could you could change the effective value by you know if the value is whatever a thousand dollars and you get taxed eight hundred dollars, well, the effective value is two hundred, right? So um, that's really yeah, that's really fascinating. I didn't realize that there was that that was part of the discussion as well. That's that's really interesting. I think though, like you, you touched on a couple of really interesting things there, like CBA, for example, um, which are touching on it, they're increasing their risk buffer, risk, risk buffer. So what that means, what that means for uh, particularly investors is what, or actually for anyone, no, particularly investors. So what 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 the bank would do is say, look, hey, let's say you buy a property that is that is yielding at you know six percent. What they will do is they will want to assess your your ability to um, pay back the debt 
with a risk buffer on it, right? So they'll assume that the interest rates are going to be, you know, a couple of percent higher just in case they rise. And then they want to know that you're still going to be able to afford to pay that debt then. So the people that are actually getting going to be most affected by these kind of changes are actually not, you know, I don't want to say this like in a kind of crass way, but they're kind of not our people, right? They're, the people that are going to be more, most affected by these kind of changes are the people who have got negative gearing strategies or they're buying... Uh, or they're, potentially they're buying their PPR in a major capital city, right? Because if you imagine if you buy a principal place of residence and it's non-income producing debt, right? And then interest rates go up or, or something like that, you're li- quite literally going to have a lot more financial stress, right? Because the repayments have gone up and nothing, you have n- nothing probably has changed in your life to change the income side of the equation. So you're just going to have higher costs, right? And of course, if you've got a negatively geared strategy, the same thing is going to happen. It means the costs are going to increase and you're, you're going to be overexposed uh, to, to the financial risk, right? So, so that's, they're the areas that so they're the areas that I kind of see the biggest biggest impacts is the the markets that are over five hundred thousand dollar median price, uh, people that are buying principal places of residence, um, particularly people that are trying to buy PPRs in capital cities because if the national median house price is nine hundred and fifty five thousand dollars, which is pri- primarily based around markets like Melbourne and Sydney, which have got way higher prices, you know it means that a lot of people are going to struggle to buy houses in those markets, right? And so. So I, I see that those markets are going to be the most affected by this, um, and I don't actually see that being a bad thing, right? Because I think, uh, I think afford like putting the, making it more affordable is actually quite a good thing. But one of the reasons that one of the reasons that I really love this um, as a sorry before I before I get onto that, one of the things that people need to remember as 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 investors, right, is that there's two sides to the debt to income ratio. There's debt and there's mm. income. Yeah, I was going to ask about the income side because you said like the income side is relatively fixed, but I would imagine if you've got a high yielding portfolio that it would yeah. impact your income level. How does that how does that come into play? That's such a good question, right? So people think that people don't really understand how yields matter, right? Let's say you buy a $500,000 property, right? And it's got $400,000 of debt on it. And then let's just say that property produces $15,000 of uh, revenue of income, right? Gross. Gross. Gross income. Gross. Right. You're gonna get a you're gonna get an income multiple on that on that revenue that create relative to the debt. But if you buy a five hundred thousand dollar property that produces thirty thousand dollars of income, same property, higher yield, right? Your the multiple is going to be higher. So you might get a five or a six times income multiple. So the debt to income ratio. So for example, for every dollar you earn, you get a multiple of that in debt, right? So if I earn one hundred thousand dollars, I can get access to six hundred thousand dollars of debt. If your property produces, say, let's say thirty thousand dollars of gross revenue, it will give you a multiple of another six times that in available debt, which is would be one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Okay. Now, obviously, there's some shading and some risk buffers and some other stuff that goes on there, but for simplicity's sake to explain the impact of yields. Let's say you buy, let's say you buy a $500,000 property and you've got access to $400,000 of debt, right? Let's just say you've got a borrowing capacity of $400,000 and you're buying a $500,000 property, right? That's the quantum we're working with. If, the, that five, if you buy a $500,000 property that produces $15,000 of gross rental income, that $15,000 would add to your 
personal income statement for the year. I'm oversimplifying this, right? This is not financial advice. I'm just trying to illustrate a point. The $15,000 would be added to your personal income statement for the year, in a sense, right? And then there would be a multiple applied on that of, let's say, six times. So that'll give you an extra $90,000 of potential borrowing capacity. Again, oversimplified. There's some other stuff in there. But that $15,000 would give you $90,000 of additional borrowing capacity, right? If you, yeah. were to do this, if you were to do the same thing and buy a $500,000 property with $30,000 of gross income, that $30,000 of gross income would give you $180,000 of, of additional borrowing capacity, right? So when you start thinking about this, this is how investors, which focus on slightly higher yields, are able to game the system because they're able to continue moving forward when other people aren't, not by over-leveraging, but by affecting the income side of the debt-to-income ratio. So it's not, about, it's not about stretching yourself beyond your means. It's about working out how to play the game of finance and use properties in a way that are going to help accelerate your portfolio and make sure that you don't get stuck. And the other, be- the other added benefit of buying slightly higher-yield properties is that if and when uh, interest rates do increase, there's, there's a greater buffer actually built into your portfolio for you to tolerate any of those kind of fluctuations, which means that you're not going to be exposed to risk. You know, it means that you're actually going to be in a position to be able to weather any kind of storms. I and mean, as we've discussed previously in another episode, we, we actually discussed the fact that when interest rates rise, rents rise too, right? Because affordability changes. And as inflation rises and wages, wages start to go up because of, un, because of employment shortages, rents are going to incri- increase too, right? So if you, if you start by buying properties which are, you know, over five, five and a half percent yield, you're going to be in a way better position. You've got to remember the national median, uh, national median yield is only 3.8, 3. 3.9%. So most people are buying properties which they can't afford to hold, right? Particularly if something happens to their job or if something happens to interest rates uh, versus, you know, intelligent investors, you know, the ones that we work with who are buying properties which are cash flow positive and supporting all of their own debt and actually are contributing to increasing their borrowing capacity, not decreasing it. It's mm. really interesting because I think a lot of people would think that, you know, it's the net the net cash flow for a year. So let's just say it's $1,000 net cash flow in a year. It's like stack that on top of your personal income and you think, well, that doesn't really change a whole deal. Mm. And so I think people think about that with like positive gearing, um, positive cash flow properties that, you know, I'll go down the strategy, but for what? I'll get an extra $1,000. That's not going to like revolutionize my borrowing capacity, but it's actually more about the growth income and and its multiple effect on adding to your borrowing capacity which yeah. i think that's just that's a game changer way to think about it for a lot of people so 100 right so the simplest way to think about this is if you were to buy a property that produced thirty thousand dollars of gross rental income right mm-hmm. now let's so let's just say that's the static let's say that you're buying a property which will produce thirty thousand dollars of gross rental income if that property purchase right is one million one million dollar property then the amount of debt that you require to purchase that property compared to the income that that property produces is way out of whack. Vice versa, if you flip that around and bought a $100,000 property, which produced $30,000 of income, the amount of debt to income is going to be completely opposite, right? So you're going to be producing shitloads of income for a very nominal amount of debt, right? And this is the this is the literal impact of focusing on yields, right? So if you're buying a $200,000 property or a $700,000 property, it sort of doesn't really matter. What you really want to look at is, what you really want to be thinking about is like, how does 
how does this contribute to my debt to income profile? Right? Because this is where most people get stuck. Now, again, oversimplified it. And again, not financial advice. Go speak to your broker, all of that kind of stuff. Happy days, right? Because let's just say yeah, your, your, your property does produce $30,000 of income. And, you put, and let's say you apply a six times multiple, you're not necessarily going to get exactly $180,000 of, of additional borrowing capacity because of things like risk buffers and income rental income shading. And they do a few other things to kind of squeeze that a little bit. So it's not a direct one for one, right? It's not exactly the same as your PAYG income, but the principle remains the same because those, those, those same buffers and shades get applied no matter what the income is, okay? So the principle remains the same and everything we've spoken about rings true. So what what do people, I'm thinking investors particularly, so if they do bring in more tighter reg, uh, regulations, yeah. how should investors be thinking about this? Because I would imagine that a lot of people, you know, if you pay attention a little bit, you'll hear this and you might get a little bit scared off from um, maybe investing broadly and kind of mm-hmm. in this kind of market, you might be thinking, I've got a strategy where I'm going to kind of buy and invest in quite a few assets at the moment, they might hear this regulation come in and think, oh, I better back off or like slow mm-hmm. down or, or think about uh, just get a bit more analysis paralysis because they've got to make a bit more conscious decision to make sure that that's the right assets that they buy. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you think investors should be thinking right now if those kind of regulations come in? Yes, yeah, there's probably a couple of parts to that. I mean, we always talk about the holy trinity, right? So cash flow positive properties in high growth areas with value add potential. So, and all of that is, you know, the reason the holy trinity is so powerful is it's, it's the perfect um, strategic way to think to adapt to any market. So if you're buying properties that are going to produce more income than they use, uh, and if you're buying them in good growth areas, right, and if you've got some way to either capture or add value to the property either at the point of purchase or post-purchase, you're in prime position to be able to basically just, you know, business as usual because you're going to be in a position to be able to control your fate and control your outcome. You're not going to be subject to the same, you know, fluctuations and volatility that may affect people that aren't doing that, right? So if 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 you are the sole contributor to the to the viability of your property portfolio, i.e. if it's negatively geared and you have to pay your portfolio rather than it pay you, then when things like interest rates change, that's when you're going to be like, you're going to really struggle, right? It's going to be a real challenge for you. Because um, even though uh, rents will go up, right, the quantum, the, the, because the ratio is out of whack in the wrong way, so you've got an inverted ratio between the income and the debt on those uh, negatively geared properties, it means that as interest rates rise, the the differential between the income, even though the income might go up as interest rates rise, the differential is actually greater because the greatest magnitude is on the debt side. Um, but the, flip it around the other way though, and if you've got cash flow positive properties, it means that um, that even if that um, even if the total benefit does get squeezed a little bit, you're going to be a, in a really good position long term, and it's not really going to negatively affect you. Now, the reason, one of the reasons that people might get scared off though is they might think, oh, you know does this mean the property market is going to stall or maybe it's going to flatline or maybe it's going to go down or, oh my God, this could be a word, the worst time ever to buy a property. And I, I just really don't, I really don't see that. I actually think that, you know, as we've discussed in previous episodes, there is so much driving this economy right now. You know, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of saved up, um, you know, household savings. We've got record low unemployment rates. We've got just, there is, there's, you know, record government spending, jobs growth, just the whole shooting that. Economically, 
the country's going fantastic, right? So the reason they got to, the reason they have to step in and intervene in, in real estate is actually because it's going a little too good, right? So they're not. It's actually not a, It's actually not because anything is wrong. It's actually because it's a little too good. Now mm-hmm. I would prefer, and I'm sure that most intelligent investors would prefer. I would prefer to get a long and sustained period of consistent growth without the risk and volatility of potentially entering into a bubble and then going up really fast and then going down. So by putting the brakes on a little bit, it's not going to stop the growth and it's not going to actually disconnect all of the um, the force that is behind the market. It's just going to level it out a little bit. So rather than you know a 1,000 units of energy being pumped out in a 12-month period, 1,000 units of energy are going to be pumped out over, say, a five-year period. And so what that means is that they're going to have a much more stable, a much more elongated boom, which is really, really good. Like, I'm, I'm so for it. Right? And what, actually, one of the reasons I'm for it is because I think there are a lot of people, particularly in this uh, industry, who are latching onto the fact that real estate is going well at the moment, uh, and then using that to kind of tap their their skills and stuff. And for us, you know, like the things that we've been doing in terms of helping people to get accelerated growth and accelerated cash flow is stuff that we've you know we've invested a lot of time, energy, effort to to build an amazing and unique system. So what I'm actually excited about is for things to kind of normalize again, so that so that some of the people you know will maybe fade away a little bit and. And we'll actually, our clients will actually be able to see a greater net benefit because it's actually easier for us to um, uh, excel in a in a market which is more stable. So I'm actually more, I'm actually quite excited about it, and I, I I actually think it's a really really good thing because as I say, it's going to take rather than some kind of sugar high where we get super jacked up mm-hmm. and property prices get way out of control and then they come crashing back down to earth and there's some kind of horrible reckoning and you know it upsets the, the market for years to come, it's actually going to make the boom more sustainable, which means that we're going to be able to enjoy the prosperity and the benefits of all of this for years and years to come. So yeah, I'm actually... I'm actually for it. And I don't think like leverage is awesome. And yeah, use as much as you can. But that doesn't mean that you should get over leveraged. And I don't I don't think any investor wants to invest in a market which is being overexposed to risk because let's say 80% of investors or let, let's say 50% of investors are only uh, investing on a debt to income ratio of say five times, right? But then what happens if uh, a big enough portion of people start investing at let's say 10 times debt to income ratio and potentially they get over leveraged and potentially something changes sort of slightly in interest rates or the economy and potentially they're all the ones that default. Well, the whole housing industry could could crash and that could actually really negatively affect the people who haven't, haven't been over leveraging, right? So it actually doesn't matter if you're doing the right thing or not or if you're like quite low risk, you can actually be exposed by other people's behavior. Mm. And I actually think that this is a really good reason to to keep it under wraps. Now, don't get me wrong, again, like a lot of I love debt. I love leverage. It's like it's the ultimate tool for creating huge amounts of wealth. I think it's awesome. But I also really love avoiding risk. Like I hate risk. I don't (laughs) – I love to go fast, but I hate risk. And I wouldn't want anything um, to proliferate which could – you know, jeopardize the prosperity and, and abundance and, and the future of all of our clients and, and everything like that. So, yeah, I'm actually, as I say, a little contrarian because I think there's going to be a lot of people out there going, ah, the sky is falling and, oh, my God, lending is going to get so much harder. It's probably not, actually. It's probably not going to get that much harder. And anyone who's bought property anytime in the last five years knows that there was a period of time there not that long ago where borrowing was really, really hard, you know, after the Royal Commission and stuff probably not going to get any harder probably it's not even going to be that hard 
Um, but all it means is that people aren't going to be overexposing themselves to unnecessary risk or some people will, but the percentage of the people that are isn't going to be big enough to potentially fracture the economy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pro this. Yeah, and I guess just going back to your point about, um, you know, people thinking that getting success in the current market, that any success is just, just a result of the current market. Mm. Um, and I think also going on the risk point, there's a lot of people kind of in this current market before it kind of, you know, gets squeezed back into have a flat sustainable growth um, over the next five years or so. Um, a lot of people would, I imagine, be at risk of making hasty decisions and not making the best decisions based on the fundamentals of the Holy Trinity and buying in the right location and the right asset for where you're at. Um, and they could just buy anything because there's a bit of FOMO and they want to get in. And then over yeah. the next, you know, they may have done that earlier this year or mid last year, and they've seen a lot of growth. So they think that they've got success and they've done really well. Mm. But if they haven't bought for the fundamentals, when it kind of, and it's not going to downturn, but it's it's not mm. going to be sustainable over the next five years if you've mm. just ridden that boost up over the last kind of 12, 18 months. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, bringing in these regulations where it can kind of smooth out the growth, as you were saying, make it more sustainable, it's going to um, reveal that those selections that people made may not have actually been the best mm. selections because they've just kind of gone crap, I need to buy a property, so I'm going to buy this one. Any and, property, and, anywhere. Oh, it's yeah, grown yeah. this much in 12 months. Yeah. How amazing, how good am I? Whereas maybe that's probably not what you should have done. Yeah, 100%. And I think there's another really interesting thing uh, to, to kind of dig into as well. It's the what we're actually talking about here is the disparity between credit property prices and uh, wages, right? That's the, that's the, that's the kind of the, the, the triangular arc that we're kind of uh, dancing around here. So... The fact of the matter is that unemployment rates at record lows and part of the reason interest rates are staying low is to, is to drive more economic prosperity and drive businesses and all that kind of stuff to hire more people. And the idea is that wages are going to go up, right? So so the, the whole point is actually really just to try and make sure that we're actually not creating a widening gap, you know, and if property prices are actually going increasing faster than wages right that's when we create that's when things become unsustainable and so if we yeah. can just slow down the property prices right whoa 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 you guys get a little bit excited until wages can catch up then we can kind of do it sustainably and i think that like mm. you know wages are going to grow inflation is you know going to come eventually all of that kind of stuff um yeah so i think i think understanding that too it's not a it's kind of like not a forever thing it's actually like can we just hang on a second because wages haven't quite caught up. Hey, come on wages, join the party, get up to speed and then we'll all keep trucking on together. Um, so as we see wages uh, increase as well, property prices are going to increase even in the capitals and all that kind of stuff too. So, yeah. Yeah, because I think um, I think the, the level of credit at the moment is growing at like double what median wages are, which is, yeah. that's you can see that that is not sustainable. So they need to put something in place to bring that back in alignment. Yeah. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So, look, all in all, I think this is actually uh, a good thing. It can seem a little bit scary when you're an investor and you are and you see that, oh, my God, there's going to be changes to credit policies and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, that probably is going to slow down some of the growth, but that's actually probably going to be a good thing because it's going to make the whole boom more sustainable and it's going to mean that you don't have to have as much FOMO 
because a lot of people a lot of people are like oh my god oh my god i need to try and buy all of the properties right now otherwise i'm going to miss out oh my god i'm going to be a failure it's going to be the worst thing in the world right but in actuality if we could spread this if we can spread this boom out over the next say 3 to 5 years which is what i believe will be happening and i've said that multiple times before i think we're going to be in a boom until about 2026 um you know, and if we can smooth that growth out over that period of time, it's going to mean that people are able to go at a much more sustainable pace for themselves, build build good property portfolios over long term rather than rushing and acting in haste. It's going to mean that, you know, when we're buying properties, there's there's not as much pressure in the situation, all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I genuinely think this is going to be a good thing for investors, particularly the ones that are able to, uh, uh, you know, retain a pragmatic, forward-focused, and optimistic mindset and see the positives in the situation, I think there's a lot of good to be, a lot of good to come out of this. So. For sure. Awesome. awesome. Well, good episode. Good hustle. Totally. Yeah, great, great and interesting topic. So um, thanks, for, thanks for bringing this one to the table, Gabby. I think it was cool. Cool talk. Yeah, awesome. Okay, guys. Well, we'll leave you with it, and um, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Make sure you like, rate, review, share. Give this to a friend, family member, or loved one. Let us know what you think. And we'll see you next time. Bye.